today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, what is the end game of former treasurer Jane Philpott? Does she want back in? Can we let this go now? Loblaws receives $12 million for a refrigeration upgrade. Should this have gone to small businesses instead? And who sells the most pot in Canada? We've got the numbers. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We were talking about this yesterday. Phil uh, Jane Philpot, former treasurer, says her and Jody Wilson-Raybould's expulsion from caucus was unlawful, which um, it certainly sounds like she wants back in. The PM responded saying it was backed by a united caucus, and would it really matter if... He called everybody back and they had a vote. Not sure where this goes moving forward. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated as always. Oh, happy to be here, Scott. So does Jane Philpott want back in? What's going on here? <laughs> no, she doesn't want back in. I don't think anyone would want back in after what she has faced the past little while, and especially being booted out of caucus unceremoniously with her now former caucus colleague Jody Wilson-Raybould, I think basically the reason for it is, A, she wants to obviously stir the pot a little bit more with the NSC-Lavalin controversy. Uh, Secondly, she wants to obviously discuss, you know, she wants to make sure that she's able to stay in the public eye as much as possible because, you know, if she opts to be re-elected, she's either going to do it under a new party banner or as an independent, so it's always important to speak out. And thirdly, um, it, it creates a little bit of controversy with the government and gets, and gets her under their skin because she's actually sort of challenging them through the rules of the House of Commons or the procedure of Parliament. To be perfectly honest with you, Scott, it, it's really a moot point. I agree that maybe in theory that's what they should have done. They should have actually sat down and had a proper vote. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau basically acknowledged that although he had caucuses strong support on it, it was he who made the final decision. So in a very short clip that circulated through social media, he basically admitted that he chopped their heads off, so to speak, if you want to call it that way. Um, But would it really have made a difference? No. Uh, Does it really have to be decided upon by the Speaker of the House? I don't really think that's the role of he or she to play in a, in a political matter. And parties obviously have authority with their own members to do as they wish. Um, does it contravene the rules? Maybe a little bit, but I'm not really sure, to be quite perfectly honest with you, that any political leader has properly followed this in the past. Is this just a much to do about nothing? Yes, but is it fun to talk about for a few days? You bet. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's the reasoning behind all of this, because both her and Jody Wilson-Raybould have said, you know, they, they stand behind the Liberal Party and what it stands for, uh, and, and they don't want to do it any harm, yet it, it would seem that by bringing this up, and, and really, what, what do we do? Call everybody back, have another vote, slam the gavel down, and then call it a day? Uh, I, I'm just sh- not sure what the end game is supposed to be here. Well, they're not going to call everyone back. It's not going to happen. The Speaker no. of the House has already basically stated that he's not going to make a determination on this and doesn't think that really it is his role in Parliament to make those sorts of decisions, and I don't disagree with that. Even if it's wrong what Justin Trudeau did, and if we go back in history a bit to any member who's been removed from a caucus, you know, were there formal votes? 
I don't know. I mean, if you go back in history, probably not. I mean, we'd have to go case by case. We'd have to actually go back to anyone who was still alive from that time and figure out if something actually was held and what the numbers were. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, as you properly acknowledged, keep saying that they still believe in the theories of the Liberal Party, the ideology, the policies, etc. What they were opposed to is the way that the NSC-Lovelin controversy was handled and the possible intervention of the government in a criminal matter, which involves, naturally, a court of law. That's what they're most concerned by. You know, and that's fine for them to say. On the other hand, I think they have to be realistic about it. Let's say, theoretically, a vote was held. My guess is that whether they want to admit it or not, most liberals would side with Justin Trudeau and have turfed them out. So, you know, it's fine to say I'm still a liberal, I believe in the Liberal Party, and blah, 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 as Phil Pott and and Wilson-Raybould are saying. At the same time, it's quite clear to me that at least today's Liberal Party, as it currently stands, doesn't want them. And the leader definitely doesn't want them. So do you go back where you're not wanted? Not typically. And are things going to change as the years go along? They possibly could, although in my syndicated column this week, I really actually said that at least in the case of Jody Wilson-Raybould, the natural move for her, and your, your listeners can read it if they wish, is to go to the Green Party, which I think is better suited for her overall. I think it would be a good fit. It's a lot of possibility for career advancement, building up the team, etc., and the possibility that she could one day become leader there if that's her desire. For Jane Philpott, I don't know what she really wants to do. She has said that she would serve out her term, which is fine. My guess is that she'll run again because I don't think she's going to do anything else. Um, There was some talk at one point, and maybe you've discussed it over the past couple of months, that she was interested in maybe looking at the Liberal Party of Ontario as a possibility to be leader of that. But that's just scuttlebutt at this point. Um, but is there really, more for her to... I just don't know why they want to... I don't know why they even want to say they want to go back to a place that, quite frankly, just doesn't want them right now. So uh, do, do either one of them have anything more to say to, end, to, to add to any of this? I mean, it's over. It's done. I mean, is there anything more damaging that they may have that they may want to, to get out in the open? Well, that's hard for me to say, Scott. But, I mean, the answer is I think yes. I mean, they both kind of imply that. They both have said that this so-called gag order, even if it's just imaginary and nothing else, is restricting them from talking about certain things. In Jody Wilson-Raybould's case, as you and I have discussed and I've discussed with others, there's a few-week period between the time that she was removed as Attorney General and Minister of Justice, or we should be nice and just say shuffled out of that post, to to the Minister of Veterans Affairs. And she was in that position for a little under a month, and then left. There were obviously discussions and things that were, that were held during that time. There could have been emails sent, text messages, etc. But all of that sort of falls under the realm of not necessarily the gag order, which no longer exists, but cabinet confidentiality. So, so they can say what they want now, can't they? They can say what they want now, can't they? Yes and no. There, you know, and that's a different issue in itself, and I don't want to waste too much of your time on it. it. It really depends on the person, to be perfectly honest. If you follow the law, the understood laws and rules and procedures of Parliament, you're not supposed to say anything. Even if you are no longer part of the party that you were once a part of, even if you're no longer a cabinet minister, you're supposed to rep- respect 
cabinet confidentiality. And you would think that if another political party picked you up, if you spoke out and basically spoke out a line about it, well, they might be concerned about you. They might bring you into their caucus, but you wouldn't necessarily have any room for career advancement because he couldn't necessarily be trusted. It's just, it's an understood rule. The thing is, though, you're absolutely right to say, could they speak out? Absolutely. But the risks to their career and their reputation are huge. Hmm. And Jane Philpott, as you know, has already basically said that she is not going to break that trust. She is not going to speak out because of cabinet confidentiality. It's just a question of whether, even though she's not part of this topic today, whether Jody Wilson-Raybould wants to or not. <laughs> uh, your thoughts on, uh, I can't let you go without asking you about the, uh, the, the money that Loblaws has received from the federal government for a green <laughs> initiative, uh, yeah. $12 million bucks for new fridges. Is this just industry getting their rebate back? How is this working? You know, this, this thing is, looks so bad on so many levels, it's not even funny. And that's not even a partisan statement, believe it or not. It really does. I mean, let's break it down as quickly as we can. The first part is, with no disrespect, disrespect to the Weston family, who have been an extremely successful, run an extremely successful family business for many years and have done many great things for this country. They own properties in, this, you know, in Canada and around the world. They are worth billions. Billions of dollars. Did they really need a $12 million rebate? Could they not have done that on their own if it was so desirable or do something with it where they could have donated to charity or whatnot? I know that businesses will always take money if offered to them, and you'd be foolish to do otherwise. They just didn't need to do it, and they shouldn't have been involved. Secondly, it doesn't look good, especially because of the whole bread price fixing controversy that happened, as we remember, about a year or so ago, which Loblaws was a part of. It just looks bad to see the federal government giving money to a company that had to give away, quote-unquote, money in, in the form of cards to make up for this loss you know, to the Canadian public in terms of the bread pricing. Um, thirdly, I just think it always looks bad for a federal government, especially one right now, who has been heavily attacked for the way that they've spent our money from Omer Cotter on, just giving out millions and millions of dollars and taxpayer dollars to things unnecessarily, or, or at least issues, ideas, corporations, people that you don't really think should be getting it for a variety of reasons. It just looks bad to see the federal liberal government via Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, giving away this free money. And here's the fourth and final point. You know, when I look at this, why would the liberals want to do this with law boss, Scott? Why not pick some small businesses or middle-class businesses. Yeah. It could have been 12 to 20 of them. Bring them out for the same sort of press conference that they held with Loblaws and basically say that they want to you know, represent all these people, that we stand for small business. We want businesses to grow. We want them to, you know, to use the environment productively because we're all interested in the environment or you know, something like that. And then actually dole out that money so that they can build their own programs. Those are the businesses that needed that $12 million Again, with no disrespect to the Westons and Loblaws, they didn't need it. They shouldn't have been a part of it. And why this thing happened in the first place is beyond me. All right, I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, Michael. What about, uh, you know, this is a retrofit. It's no different than if it was a car plant getting an update. And this is all about climate change. Think of the dent this is going to make. 
Well, Mr. Devil, um, I, I know what you're saying, and I understand what you're saying. I'm saying, I'm saying everything Marvin Ryder from DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University said to me yesterday when I had this very discussion with him. All right, fair enough. I didn't hear it, but I'll, yeah. I'll accept that. With, with all due respect to Mr. Ryder, yes, there is, that model could certainly be used, and I don't disagree with that. At the same time, the Westons are perfectly within themselves and have enough money to do that retrofit on their own if they wish. If environmental issues are extremely important to them, and look, I don't know if they are necessarily. I have met the Westons. I'm not going to lie about that. I, in fact, even you might be shocked to know because you wouldn't expect of it. I lived a few blocks away from them in Toronto at one point growing up. So I know the Weston family. I know Galen Weston Jr. to some degree, although I haven't seen him in many years. They're nice. They're nice people. They can do lots of different things. I think they may be interested in issues like the environment. It's always possible. But at the same time, if they really want to do it, they could do it on their own, the same way that small businesses, middle class business owners and individuals, just average people like you and I could also do it if we want to retrofit our businesses, our homes, whatever we want with solar panels. When, you know, whatever they feel like, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell them what to do. That's the that's I think would have made a lot more sense than accepting government money, which they didn't need, having this whole press conference, which really wasn't relevant. And in the liberals case, doling out money to corporations that is just going to necessarily create a lot of blowback and actually show them and make them sort of look as bad as they've been the last few months when they've wasted money, wasted our time, wasted resources, and have thrown themselves into such a mess that right now, if an election were held today, they would fall and Andrew Scheer would be prime minister with a majority government. What about, I mean, obviously they're obviously, you know, they're trying to pressure uh, residents and, and the average citizen to to do their part and, and, and to help out. You know, we, we send in this thing with our income tax and, and we're going to get this rebate back. Yeah. Uh, most of it back, if not all of it back, is this not the same thing for business and from a party that, you know, really isn't known for business decisions? <laughs> no, they're not. And it's, it's the latter point. Yes, but if, you, if you're not known for business, again, not to be a broken record, then why not target the businesses where you have the most success? Yeah. The Galen Westons of the world, and if you can look, you can look back on it, it's not a big secret, Galen Weston was supportive of the Tories for many years. My guess, although I have not spoken to him in many years, is that he probably is still the same. He's just not going to turn down the rebate the same way that his son and his daughter and others associated with the family would not, because the government is offering it. So fine, we'll take it, we'll use it in a certain way, and hopefully it'll sort of fit the parameters. However, I think that if the Liberals really want to have an effective rebate for the environment, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, Target the companies and individuals that can benefit you. Not, and, and it would also benefit their pocketbooks at the same time. When you go to places like Loblaws or Metro or Dominion or Sobeys or all that, sure, they're worthy uh, institutions. They obviously sell goods that we need on a regular basis. They are important to the Canadian economy. If they qualify for tax breaks and tax credits, they certainly deserve it. With something like a rebate, which is really targeted and is really a politically targeted type of motive, I would have actually gone with companies and individuals that really can help you, and that's average people, not people who are seen as being the wealthy part of society. As important as they are and as relevant as they are, 
they're not the right ones to target. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. As always, Michael, thank you so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Loblaws has received money. We talked about this yesterday with Marvin Ryder, received money from the federal government for a, a green initiative when it comes to their fridges. $12 million bucks they're going to get, and that's going to outfit their stores uh, with new cost-effective, energy-efficient uh, refrigeration devices, I guess. Marvin Ryder, business professor, was on yesterday talking about this. Uh, he was for it, saying that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it appears that we're getting the money back from the carbon tax in your income tax, that's going to pay for, I guess, the, the rising fuel costs or the fallout from that. I don't know. Have to wait and see. And uh, business, should they not get the same sort of rebate that what we do? So, um, you know, they're polluting. Big business is polluting. This helps them stop polluting. Should they not get incentives like you or I did or do? At, uh, at various points. Uh, either way, you slice it, uh, writing a check to uh, Loblaws for $12 million rubs a lot the wrong way, and uh, uh, many are upset about this. Uh, Aaron Woodruck is with us, Federal Director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and is on the line now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, Aaron's new piece is The Trudeau Liberals Fighting Climate Change, One Refrigerator Subsidy at a Time. Uh, is this resonating with Canadians, you think, Aaron? Yeah, look, I think this one has set a lot of people off for a couple of reasons. It's a combination of two controversial things. It's corporate welfare. It's giving tax dollars to a profitable company. And it's also supposedly to fight climate change. And I say supposedly because just a week ago, this government imposed a federal carbon tax in four provinces, including here in Ontario. And the logic behind it is this, Scott. It's if we raise the price of things like gasoline, uh, you're not going to be able to buy as much of it. You're going to change your behavior. And so that's how we're going to reduce our emissions. And yet... On Monday, they turn around. They didn't slap a fridge tax on Loblaw to get them to make more efficient fridges. They said, oh, here's $12 billion. We're going to subsidize your activity. So they seem to be talking out of both sides of their mouths. And it sounds a lot like they've got one set of rules for the rest of us and one special set of rules for, you know, big companies like Loblaw. Uh, what about the impact that this is going to have? I, uh, uh, Minister McKenna said something like 50,000, like the equivalent of having 50,000 cars off the road and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Is, yeah. there, is, there, any, is there any advantage to this? Well, there is for Loblaw to do it. Loblaw is already paying three quarters of the cost of the upgrade themselves. They should pay for 100 percent of it. Uh, so and, and, and there's no sign that Loblaw wouldn't do this anyway, because they're going to save money. Right. It's more. These are more efficient fridges. They're going to save on their electricity bill. Um, so we're already going to get those equivalent to 50,000 cars off the road. It's just that Loblaw is going to pay for it rather than you and me and the taxpayers of this country. Isn't this like getting uh, like us getting rebates on light bulbs and stuff? Well, look, we are getting those rebates, and that'll offset some of the cost uh, or all the costs for some people. But it is a bit of magic mascot to say we're going to collect this pool of money, but don't worry, we're going to hand it back out in a way that all of you are going to be better off. I think most people scratch their head at that, um, and it seems to be a bit of a tall claim. And if they're using some of that money to subsidize groups like Loblaw, I think the obvious question is, you know, if if uh, higher prices didn't incentivize Loblaw to uh, to 
upgrade their fridges on their own, then how is it going to be the case that with a with a force a liter gas tax, it's going to change the behavior of millions of Canadians uh, to reduce our emissions? What's in this for the Liberal Party? I mean, other than a photo op that might be doing them as much damage as it is good. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, as you said, it's, it's like writing a check to a corporation that doesn't need it. They were going to do this anyway. Uh, why not give this to, to small mom-and-pop organizations? Why not give this to small business? What's, what's the advantage for them here politically? That's a really good question. In fact, that's one of the number one groups I've been getting emails from is small businesses saying, you know, I could have used this. I probably need it and can't afford it as much as Loblaw does. So why did they get the money? I think the short answer is the government's going to find more money to spray around at these groups as well. They just haven't gotten around to it yet. And of course, we have to remember we're running a deficit. So this is all borrowed money that they're, they're pushing out the door. Um, and I think the short answer is to what's the benefit, Scott, these guys have nailed their flags to the idea that they are fighting climate change, that Canada is going to stop climate change, and they will spend money on any measure that they say is, is going to advance that goal. Is, do you think climate change is the number one issue for Canadians? I think it's a big issue. I, I think a lot of Canadians are concerned about it, but I do doubt that uh, people's willingness to quote unquote fight it is is uh, is unlimited, and when you start attaching dollar figures to that, I think you find a lot of people's enthusiasm starts to drop off. I think most people would say, "Yeah, let's let's take care of our environment and let's fight climate change." But when you start asking them, "Oh, would you be willing to pay an extra thousand, two thousand dollars a year?" I think the enthusiasm really starts to drop off. Uh, as you mentioned, and let's talk a little bit more about the fact that supposedly we're getting all this back from uh, from income tax. Um, uh, if we get it all back, what does it matter? I'm playing devil's advocate again. If we get all this back, what does it matter? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, look, if, if their argument is whatever we set the tax at, don't worry, you'll get more back. I think the first question I have is why don't you set the tax 10 times higher? I mean, one of the criticisms of this carbon tax, uh, some people say it won't do anything, but you know, real hardcore environmental advocates point out it's not enough. Yeah. If you really want to change people's behavior, you need to double or triple the price of gas I think it's pretty obvious why they won't do that it's because they know it'd be politically suicidal but if their magic magic math means whatever you tax you get more of it back it, it seems to me that wouldn't be a problem um lots will point to british columbia uh, you know for the perfect model it's utopia there they have the carbon tax uh they're doing just fine although now we're certainly seeing the reality of of the life of uh, of living in British Columbia with the with the prices that they're paying at the pumps right now. Uh, what about their plan and how it works? Have we learned anything from them? We actually have, and, and it actually doesn't back up the argument the way a lot of carbon advocates uh, say that it would. I mean, first of all, the taxes did not end up being revenue neutral. Um, over time, it has crept up, and now people are paying more tax. And the other is that it has not actually reduced their emissions. It has reduced the rate of increase. Um, so in other words, it, their increase in emissions is more slow than it was before, but it's not going down. And, uh, you know, anyone who follows this issue knows we need big reductions. We don't just need to slow down the rate of increase. We need to actually reduce it. And that has not happened even in BC, which is held up as the model for carbon taxes. What about those that say this is a start? This gets us thinking about this sort of thing. This gets us thinking about maybe next time buying a more fuel efficient car, all those things. 
Well, first of all, uh, if you if you take the issue as seriously as people claim to, we don't have that kind of time. We're talking about a decade. Uh, baby steps are not going to be enough. Um, you know, so I, I really question uh, the argument that, you know, we can get off to a good start. I think the, the reason that this tax is so controversial is it's actually the worst of both worlds. It's not big enough to have a real impact, but it is big enough to annoy people and squeeze the budgets of average people. So you're actually not achieving either objective. You're squeezing people a bit more and you're not actually advancing the goal of reducing emissions. Uh, science got us into this and certainly not overnight. Will science get us out of it or does it take a change in societal behavior does it does it take societal pain to change this uh, it's going to take techn- technological change that's for sure and i think that's really the debate about how quickly we can have that change happen if you go back for example a good example a good parallel scott is back in the 60s and 70s people worried about uh, overpopulation and starvation and that was based on the fact back then our technology didn't allow us to produce enough food uh, but we improved and we found a way to get more efficient with that so uh, we're hoping everyone's crossing their fingers that one way or another whether it's taxes regulations whatever uh, we're going to get the technology that will allow us to uh, to ensure that we can get this problem under control as you said growing up in the past i mean i'm a guy in my 50s i remember cleaning up the great lakes in in the shape that they were once in, you know, the removal of leaded gas, um, you know, issues with the ozone layer. Those were all problems that we got that we were able to overcome. But it didn't seem that it was up to society to go backwards or change their behavior to make it happen. It was science and technology investing in the right areas. Is that naive to think? Well, no. And if you look at, you take a good example of things like electric cars. I think that most people would agree that someday electric cars are going to become the only type of car. The question is, how soon can we get there? Uh, some people dream that we can get there in five years, but the reality is it may take 20 or 30 years. And I don't know that things like slapping a carbon tax is going to speed that up. So, uh, yes, green energy is good. Cleaner energy is good for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, the reality is we're not quite where we need to be, where people hope we'll be. And it's just not clear that a carbon tax is going to change that anytime soon. So if it's not taxing and getting more revenue out of uh, uh, society in order to change this problem, what is the solution? How do we, how, how do we, um, you know, many have said we, we do things like this so it feels like we're contributing. So, uh, you know, I don't mind paying another four and a half cents a liter because, uh, you know, it's going to the environment and even though it's yeah. not doing anything. So what is like, is it is it taxing us into uh, oblivion? And as you said, the you know, the change won't be with the environment or, or habits. It'll be with the political party of the day. H- how do we get there? Yeah, I think the first thing you always have to keep in mind is that it's a global issue. And so when we focus only on Canadian policy, we're really talking about something that's not going to be the deciding factor, right? We could do everything. Um, we could have our emissions to zero or we could do nothing. That is not going to determine the fate of the planet. We do need to look at the global emissions. And one of the areas that Canada has a competitive advantage to contribute is if we can develop technology uh, that can be exported to other bigger countries to make them cleaner, that will make a much bigger difference. So rather than worrying about, you know, does Canada's 1.6% go up or down 20%, if we can produce technology that helps places like China or India or the United States cut their emissions, that would have a much bigger impact than, than just worrying about our own emissions. Many will say, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate, if, we, if it, you know, it's our job to set the example, to show that it can be done. 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, I would have more time for that argument if there was any evidence that people were willing to follow. You know, Australia went through this a few years ago. They had a carbon tax. Nobody followed them. Um, I think I think there's enough evidence on a number of fronts that countries like China are not really interested in, in following our example. They play by their own rules. So I think we need to be realistic about that. I think it's a bit naive to think if Canada is the Boy Scout at the front of the parade, other countries are going to be shamed into following us uh, and, and that it's not just going to be us uh, disadvantaging ourselves while others take advantage of it. What about industry? Are we doing enough to incentivize uh, industry to pursue this. I mean, at the end of the day, as you said, we all know we're we're, we're probably going. We are going towards uh, electric vehicles. Uh, we know that the company that comes up or perfects that will make a fortune. Are we doing enough to to create incentive for companies to aim in that direction? Yeah, there's good debate about that, Scott. But it, you also have to realize the incentive's already there. Uh, there are people who will buy products and vehicles because they know. This. In other words, there's a market incentive already in place. If you are the one to win that race to build a reliable, cheap electric vehicle, you are going to make a fortune. And so I think, uh, and remember, carbon taxes really are just a way of leveraging the market as it is. So the market at the end of the day is going to be the one to fix this. We're going to sink or swim with it. And uh, again, I think sometimes we just need to recognize there is a limit to what Canada can do, no matter how strongly we feel. We are really just a small chunk of the problem. And and whatever action we take is just going to be at the margin. Do you think that's the issue here is we're looking too much inward and not what is going on around the rest of the globe? I think that's part of it, and I think it's natural, because this is a very different type of problem than we're used to dealing with in politics. Most of the problems that we face are things that are within our borders that we can control because there's one government in control of the problem. This problem is very different than that, and so I think we always need to remember that uh, you know, our actions, uh, you know, however strongly we feel, they're, at the end of the day, they are more symbolic than they are substantive here. Do you think Canadians will become environmentally fatigued about all of this? Uh, it seems to be a major, major pillar in the, in the uh, Liberal plan. And again, I, you know, we've asked many people if this is a top priority for Canadians. It certainly is up there. But is it the top one, two or three? Um, you know, then obviously consideration drops quite a bit. Are, are we getting tired of this yet? Well, I would say this. I think some people are tired of being lectured at that if they don't make dramatic changes to their lifestyle tomorrow, the world is going to end or that, you know, uh, they're bad people because they have to drive a car because they have kids. And so, you know, so I think there are some people that are quite tired of that. Um, look, it, it, the reason it's an important issue is because it, 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 it involves the fate of the planet. Yeah. There's no getting away yeah. from that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, sort of having your fi- finger wagging your face, it doesn't matter what the issue is. Uh, too much of that can, can tire out people pretty quickly. All right, Aaron Woodrick has been with us, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. The latest article, the Trudeau Liberals fighting climate change, one refrigerator subsidy at a time. Do you think this has gone away now, this Loblaws deal, or will, will, will we hear more of this moving forward? I think this is not the last we've heard of uh, subsidies to big companies when it comes to climate issues. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, here we are into uh, legalization of marijuana. So far, the world has not come to an end. And now uh, a a new report 
uh, coming out, um, a new survey saying that Alberta and Ontario could lead Canada's legal pot markets by 2024, according to a report. We're going to talk about that. Also, the federal government has introduced legislation to remove the barrier of interprovincial booze trade, or barriers in interprovincial booze trade. Of course, we remember uh, the scenario with the man uh, from Quebec. Uh, and on that note, the federal government has introduced legislation that says we'll remove the final barrier final federal barrier to the easier flow of beer, wine, and spirits across provincial and territorial boundaries. Uh, Now it says it is up to the provinces and territories to enact changes uh, that would allow for direct-to-consumer sales across Canada. Uh, The trade minister said the uh, legislation once passed will remove the federal requirement that alcohol moving from one province to another uh, go through a provincial uh, liquor authority. This obviously came to uh, light when a New Brunswick man uh, lost a five-year court battle to buy cheap beer in neighboring uh, Quebec. The Supreme Court of Canada unanimously ruled last April that the provincial and territorial governments have the authority to restrict imports of goods from other jurisdictions uh, and that Canadians do not have a constitutional right to buy beer or anything like that and fairly transport alcohol across the provincial and territorial borders. Uh, Have we made progress? Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario, and he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Considering your uh, authority in uh, in post-Prohibition era in Ontario, is this sort of the last... Uh, resemblance of the old ways? Um, it's one of them. I mean, this is a law that uh, was found to be necessary during Prohibition, so it is one of those, quote, Prohibition-era laws. Um, and what it does is it means that if it if it's passed, individuals can bring stuff in for their personal consumption. There's still restrictions on interprovincial trade with in bulk. Um, so if companies are bringing it in um, for sale, it, it, it does. It does still have some restrictions on that, but yeah, it's 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 one of the last vestiges of that period. Does this fix the problem then? If it's just, it would have helped the guy uh, in New Brunswick fighting his court case, I guess. But uh, does it do much for the economy? Does it do much for small business that's trying to transport this stuff back and forth? Yeah, I think it does, and I haven't had a chance to look at in depth at it because the. It's a, the bill that has um, been presented is a, a massive bill that makes a whole bunch of tweaks to a whole bunch of different laws. Um, but the, the changes to the, in, um, the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act, I think is what it was called, uh, Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act, is, um, they're, they're relatively minor. They just remove some of the, the, those final restrictions. But it does require the provinces now to step up and change their rules because the liquor control boards in different provinces have the authority to control who, like what can be brought in for what purposes. So uh, will it stall there just because the feds have given this nod? Does that mean it will continue? It's tough to say. I mean, this is one of those things that combines sort of the, the finances of the province with um, ideas of liberty, right? So um, a couple provinces have already removed those. I think Alberta and Manitoba. Um, New Brunswick was actually considering it, although with changes of government, sometimes changes, obviously changes in policy um, happen. Um, but it could be the sort of thing that there tends to be more, a little more libertarian views uh, among governments. But then again, the income is, the, it, it would have to, it would require the government to determine whether the revenue from um, that interprovincial trade 
uh, the loss of that revenue can be offset either by other revenues or it, it is in keeping with the kind of the philosophy of freer trade, right? So there's there's those sorts of things that they'll need to consider. But it is definitely a step um, uh, in that direction. Uh, is that why this has been so difficult? Is in the end provinces are making money off this? Uh, that's definitely part of it. Uh, there does tend to be this... Um, well, there's this tendency that when a, a new government comes in, even if they are talking about, you know, liberalizing liquor laws, it's not often the case that that happens. Uh, we'll, we're seeing something uh, different in Ontario now, and, and under uh, Ralph Klein years ago in Alberta, there were certainly some significant changes. But usually these things uh, change, are, are tweaked, right? So um, the big thing with um, supermarket sales of beer and wine in Ontario was, we've talked about this a lot, seemed to be a monumental change, but it was a bit of a tweak to um, the, the places um, that could sell it. So, so often it's sort of a glacial pace. This might allow a, the next step of the provincial um, government. Well, it, it, it will encourage the next step of the provincial government some uh, uh, loosening up their rules. Or Considering this is for small amounts, meaning personal use, I'm guessing, uh, is there much revenue loss here? Yeah, it's tough to say, and and I think that it depends on the province. Like th- th- we may have seen a lot of that between Ontario and Quebec, although I don't, I, I haven't heard of anyone being stopped at the border yeah. you know, between Ottawa and, and Gatineau and, and um, being expected to to pay up. I think what it does do, it does create an interesting space where um, the idea of bulk imports will be questioned, right? Because it does still talk about bulk importation. And the I can't remember the guy's name from New Brunswick. He was bringing in a lot of beer. So yeah, he had a it few. It may have still been a violation, um, but it depends on what the provinces put in place as far as their determination of what bulk. Really, to have any effect, would this not have to be a lot broader in the sense to allow... Uh, wineries, craft brewers, um, and and restaurateurs, and and whoever would sh- would ship this stuff inter or across pro- provincial lines, uh, wouldn't it have to include them in order to make a real impact here? Because that's uh, who's also complaining about this. Is you know, if you want to buy a case of wine from another part of the uh, the country, it's it's hugely taxed. Yeah, and and I, I I'm afraid I don't know that the. the specifics of this, I, I have a feeling that that is something that is on, in the provincial jurisdiction right now. Um, sending it across the border can be legal, but if the receiving province makes it illegal to receive that, then, you know, this is, this is where the federal and provincial jurisdictions um, are, are kind of fuzzy. And actually, a lot of Supreme Court cases have been fought over those jurisdictions over booze between province and... and um, but so, yeah, it would require that sort of loosening. Um, again, it's, it's, it's so new that it's still hard to see how this will, or where this will go through, through the legislature. And it might be that they're going to tweak it if enough lobbying goes on from those industries that say exactly what you said. Maybe this, this isn't quite enough for what we want. All right. Other changes uh, coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. We heard earlier on this week, uh, tailgating now permitted. <laughs> what, what is, why wasn't it? What's different? What would be different? What would need to be different in order to give us Buffalo in yeah. Southern Ontario? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are a few things. I mean, this is about drinking in public, right? Um, drinking in a parking lot. Uh, right now, 
I think our rules around sort of drinking in public have loosened up to the point where, you know, you can go to a festival and you don't have to be hidden in a beer tent somewhere, right? right? Um, But it would still require, and I don't know what the rules are in the U.S. in different states, but it would still require um, things like uh, a license for that. I mean, before this, it would require a license for that space, the space to be enclosed in fencing. Um, I don't know if the province would have looked favorably upon a bunch of people sitting beside their cars drinking, even if they're in a parking um, lot. So it it does loosen that up. Um, Some people have said that the the problem remains that if you are serving booze to a friend, uh, you are responsible for that friend, right? Mm -hmm. Like just like at home. Um, So if you're doing it in a public space and that friend then gets in their car and drives off, you're responsible as much as they are, right? So there are those sorts of things that, that the idea might be great, but then implementing it, is is a much more complicated process. Uh, Will this change anything in Ontario, do you think? Yeah, probably. Um, I think there's a a certain hunger among some people uh, to be able to tailgate before big games. Um, Certainly when the NFL brings their, I don't know if they're exhibition games or just a game to Toronto, there's there's tailgate going on, um, and it might allow it to be more... um, well, to be legal. I guess the question uh, yeah. is, is will it be regulated in such a way? I mean, you know, we've done situations like this up here in the past, but it's a yeah. closed environment. You have to buy the liquor from the people serving the liquor. It's just like a, basically a special yeah. permit sort of scenario. Yeah. Um, are we going to see like a watered-down version of this, or is it going to be like it is when you go to a Bills game? I don't know. You know, it, it, because they just introduced it now, and they're yeah. introducing a number of uh, sort of alcohol-related um, loosening of the laws, it will be, you know, there's the rhetoric, right? There's the way that the, the law is framed, and then there's actually the specific um, details around it. So I can't really answer whether it would change it. It could. It could fundamentally change it. Um, it just depends on um, the, the, the venues, right? Like where where can tailgating happen? Is it just outside of stadiums and, and arenas and that, or is it, you know, any parking lot can become a tailgate party? You know, those sorts of things will need to be um, sorted out. All right, uh, let's move on to cannabis. A uh, mm-hmm. new article uh, in Global News on the Global site, Ontario and Alberta to lead Canada's legal pot market by 2024. Uh, Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, Quebec make up nearly 85% of the legal cannabis market. Is that a surprise considering the size of these provinces? Um, the, the, yeah, the, st- the problem is for us, the, the, this report is um, behind a paywall, and it's a high paywall, so it's hard to read it. But the the data we've seen in some of the um, some of the newspaper reports um, show, uh, yeah, that there's going to be a, a large intake or a large up. There's a potential large uptick in um, cannabis use in Alberta and in Ontario. Partly the well, mostly the Alberta situation, which is the fourth um, large, most populous province behind BC. Um, Ontario and Quebec, as you said, is that the idea of it's a free market, a much more of a free market system, right, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a provincially uh, run system. So is and that market system appearing to be more efficient? It's a, Well, I think what's happening is this report is assuming it will be more accessible, it will be a little cheaper, possibly, uh, the, uh, the principle of the free market being, you know, the, the market will be determined by the customer behavior. So if people want it, the price will will meet that uh, will go down to meet them you know all those supply and demand things um it, it's uh, it's hard to see what other assumptions they've used behind this it's certainly an interesting idea and uh, most definitely the fact that 
there's still a huge proportion of the market being served by the black market, like of the of the customers being served by the black market. In the next five years or so, we will see um, likely uh, the 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 legal market filling in that space, and then that's when we're going to need these uh, the the different approaches to um, the retail sale being adjusted to meet that that demand, right? So if we have more private stores or in some provinces where it's only province run, maybe they loosen it up, it may affect these predictions significantly. So, and right now in Alberta, it's very similar to alcohol in the sense that it's market driven. Do we know how many stores are there? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I'm afraid. No, I don't know. I know um, that they've been, uh, well, I mean, the, the one number I have is 17 when they when they started, right. um, but I don't know how it's opened up now. It's certainly more than in Ontario. Uh, so are other provinces looking to Alberta as the template to follow, or is this still more about control than it is free market? I think it's... It's it's about control. It's about um, manage. It's, it, it's it's a combination of control over the legal market and an attempt still to undermine the black market. Right. So I think most provinces are still trying to figure this out, but they're also responding to the expectations of their own um, citizens. Um, so you may see places like New Brunswick and Nova Scotia where it's um, pro- provincially run loosening it up as the citizens start to go, okay, you know, it's not as bad as we thought. Um, but it also depends, it, it requires a bit of political will and it requires a bit of, um, it requires the economics around figuring out where is the money coming from? Do do we get more money out of running the stores ourselves or do we get more money out of opening it up to the private sector and, right. and taxing it? And all of those things get into a very complicated sort of set of calculations. And then there's also the political um, the the optics of it and and sort of the politi- like I said the political will to to make that jump. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, Doug Ford went from uh, it appeared at the beginning a, a more liberal system than what Kathleen Wynne's was, mm-hmm. uh, then pulled it right back and and cited supply issues. How come Alberta's not having those supply issues? Um, or are they? It, it, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I could speculate. Part of it is Alberta is less than one third of the population of Ontario. Right. Um, the the demand may not have been as high. Um, also, it may be that not only was there, you know, did Ford say twenty five stores instead of a thousand, right, um, when he yeah. made his change, but there is also the provincial um, distribution system. So, so it isn't just twenty five stores in a population of 14 million people, it's 25 stores plus an, a provincial system. Um, so it may be that, you know, the Alberta system didn't have that. So so it could be that on balance there's the same kind of supply. Um, but also the Alberta system has been in place since October, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they have been able to, part of business is to secure your supply and um, make the deals with your suppliers and stuff like that. And they've had the time to do that, right? How are they going to keep prices down, especially when, you know, uh, April 1st, an accelerator tax went on alcohol. So now we don't even have budgets anymore where everybody gets to bitch and complain that, uh, you know, the price, the, the price of uh, whatever the sin object that you were purchasing went up. Uh, now it's just every April, it, yeah. yeah, we'll just jack it up a few more points. Uh, yeah. How do you balance that with giving this industry uh, literally free reign. There's a new study out, uh, a new issue, uh, sorry, a new article out now 
on uh, from Global News. Almost half of those who stuck with illegal pot say they have done so because of the cost, according yep. to new Stats Can survey. Canadians yep. paying about ten dollars a gram for legal pot, six thirty-seven for illegal. How are they going to balance this? I think we'll see. Uh, to me, this is an issue of simple supply and demand, right? There's not as much supply of the legal cannabis as there is of the illegal cannabis, right? Just, mm-hmm. There wasn't on day one because there was a, a much bigger market, illegal market. So as those new licensed producers um, are licensed and begin to produce, um, and as their product becomes available, that price should be adjusted. Now, I know that... So will it go up or come down? I mean, if you eliminate the black market, then you've got a monopoly again. So uh, then you can dictate what happens. So will that mean it will go back up or will it stay down? There's going to have to be um, a balancing act. and, And I suspect it could even be generational. It could be a while before that black market is completely, not completely, but is, is, is sufficiently enough uh, destroyed that um, people won't know where to go if there's no legal um, supply. Right. Um, and at the same time, you've got uh, the idea of, you know, if you overtax, um, that will create a, a door for uh, an illegal market to open up again. Again, making the comparison to contraband cigarettes, which some say in some areas can make up a quarter or a third of consumption, are we going to see an elimination of the black market? I don't think you ever eliminate a black market when you've got some kind of control over the product, when you've got some sort of regulation, right? The, 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 the comparison with cigarettes um, is, 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 has, has some viability, but we have to remember also that tobacco... Um, is on indigenous communities, it's something that doesn't have the same kinds of controls. And so a lot of the black market of cannabis, or sorry, of tobacco comes from non-indigenous people buying stuff that they shouldn't be buying because it's, it's, it's legal for indigenous people to produce it and sell it um, within their communities, right? So there's that market that, that's, there's that supply that exists that is being misdirected from whichever whoever's uh, misdirecting it, right? Um, With cannabis, we don't have that kind of protected supply, although we do have it with medical, so it may be the same thing, but the medical is highly regulated in in its distribution. So it may or may not be the same thing, but it certainly um, is something that needs to be considered because, like I said before, if you start to overtax it, it's going to open a door for the black market to flourish. Uh, April full, uh, April 1st, it went on sale uh, recreationally, legally. Uh, so we're, what, um, 10 days into this. Mm-hmm. Um, is it still too early to gauge how it's going, considering most places or a lot of places aren't open yet? I think so. I think, though, that one, one good indicator, and this is the same thing we saw on October 17th, is that there were lineups, and there continue to be lineups. And it's not just people for the... the um, I mean, some people might be lining up just for the novelty of buying cannabis legally, but I think more people are lining up because, in general, people would rather do the the right thing, you know, and and follow the law. This is what we saw at the end of Prohibition, two lineups, and there was low supply, but people would rather go in that direction, right, because we're generally law-abiding communities, right? Um, So, you know, in St. Catharines, we still have lineups, you know, 10 days on, 
my understanding is. And, you know, you don't stand in a line just for novelty. Yeah, <laughs> good know? point. Yeah. There's not much novelty in standing in line. Yeah. We, we're kind of Maybe once. <laughs> yeah. We stand in a lot of lines. I don't think people are going to get that excited about it anymore. Dan Malik's been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Cheers. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.